Dollars and cents for the Nomad Part 1. What are you talking about, Bob Davis? Trying to keep the sort of fire and moonlight by the lake vibe. Trying to keep the travel vibe. I've decided what I'm going to do is at least... I'm probably going to do two podcasts. And the reason is I think we're at an inflection point when it comes to what I would say dollars and cents for nomads, for people who are of moderate means, for about 180 million people in this country who, you know, have to live day to day with their job or otherwise. And yes, I am sitting out here by the fire and it's a perfect time to, uh, to do this. So in part one, I'm going to make some observations about uh, many of the things that I have seen studied and seen studying when I started all this about two and a half years ago being uh, frustrated by high fuel prices when the inflation start just started. I generally do not talk about politics. I don't feel that the economy is politics. I'm going to talk about uh, I'm going to talk about how it can be interpreted politically for some people in this podcast, but you'll understand where I'm coming from. Big shout out to my guys at 36 Lynn, the independently owned and operated refueling station in South Minneapolis at 36th Street South and Lindale Avenue South. They just put up uh, an advisory on their Instagram page, which is 36 Lynn on Instagram, uh, which talks about some of the really awesome locally sourced products they have in the store. One of those things is Peace Coffee. There's a whole selection of these coffees. It's great coffee. So if you if you go to an independent refueling station, like 36 Lin, obviously they get a better deal on fuel because they're not owned by a big oil company and they can pass the savings on to you and every penny counts when it comes to fuel gas or diesel secondly the store is a great experience thirdly 36 Lin is down with the community they've been down with the community they've been there a very long time and as independent as an independent refueling station and south minneapolis is a community that really uh, values that kind of involvement, and I think it's great. So visit them, say hello, and check out the store and get some, get some gas, <laughs> get some cheaper gas. 3-6 Lynn, the independently owned and operated refueling station in South Minneapolis. And I'm going to start with how we now work things out in this society using modern communications channels. And increasingly... The communications channels are, are have basically shifted from broadcast network cable to social media, and increasingly, the social media format is video. TikTok-style video, literally TikTok, YouTube, short stories and reels on various um, social media channels, reels and, and, uh, and, and other things like that on Instagram or TikTok. And I'm going to say secondarily Facebook. Facebook these days tends to be populated by people over 65 and it tends to be almost a ponderous uh, struggle with very little really timely decent information. However, unfortunately the videos that we see about complicated issues like the economy are generally from producers we don't know. And you have to do your own vetting, meaning you have to do searches and you have to know what you're looking for. You have to understand the context. You have to understand history. You have to understand a little bit about the financial system 
and the language that is used to talk about the financial system. And the only way to do that is just to, to kind of pile in and learn those terms and, and what they mean. And that means a lot of fact checking and looking things up. So the people, a lot of people doing these videos are just people. And it's either an attempt to gain some level of stature so they can build their financial business, or it's an, a real attempt, amateur or not, to winnow the complex, complexities uh, into simplicities, which is an improbable task. In other words, turning them into missives, almost like a song that you could play uh, over video, which usually includes some kind of uh, what they call B-roll, which is basically stock footage of the stock market, uh, stores boarded up, the mint producing dollars or coins, images of faces of concern, and so forth. There's, in general with video, and I, I have talked about this on, on my YouTube channel as well, there's very little copy. These are the titles they use. The end of the world is coming. This is terrifying. This is what you have to do now. And usually it's buy gold, buy silver, buy Bitcoin, buy real estate, buy farmland, buy this stock, get your money out of the banks now. Everyone will lose everything. And my favorite lately has been everyone will be wiped out next week. There's a guy and I, I really don't like him. Every time he puts a video up, it's everyone will be wiped out next week or do this one thing. So this is, these are basically clickbait headlines and either the videos don't pay off on it or the videos are just not very well done in terms of the basis or, or the, or, or the, the rooting in facts. And I've found people and I'll put links in for this podcast and the next one on the actual, what the data shows, but I have slowly over three and a half years really sort of weeded out the good and the bad. And some of the people that were good aren't good. And I've done a podcast about that, which is Algorithm Slaves. A lot of YouTubers on almost every subject get to the point where they are, uh, they really become slaves of trying to get more views, likes, and subscriptions. And they get into, uh, they get into a trough or a rut of saying basically the same thing in different ways or doubling down on the end of the world kind of scenario or you have to do this now or look out, this is terrifying, that type of thing. And that is not productive if you have a small business, if you're a nomad and you're traveling and you want to know whether you can keep traveling, if you are looking for a new rig and you're trying to figure out when to strike to get that rig, you know, that's not really actionable information as to what is actually happening. So again, dollars and cents for people who want to be nomads or dollars and cents, and that is S-E-N-S-E, cents, -E, as in brains, for people who are everyday people. Well, it's very difficult if that's the kind of information you're looking for because everyday people, uh, we, we don't have time to predict the future. Even though we are constantly subjected to attempts to predict the future in everything, as I have often said, from who's going to win the Vikings game this weekend or whether the, you know, your favorite baseball team's going to win the pennant this year and we haven't even started hardly playing, uh, to what's going to happen next week when such and such occurs. Money movements, which are almost impossible to predict with any degree of accuracy, generally speaking. And the reason is, and I'll quote economist David Ransom, 
who probably was quoting von Mises or Adam Smith or someone to that effect, who basically said that the economy itself is a force of nature. Think of it like a storm, a, a, a raging river, uh, waves on the ocean, tornado, hurricane, not to suggest that it's destructive, but that the forces that control the economy probably are closer to waves than uh, any other uh, analogy. In fact, they're basically sine waves and things uh, are on track and these waves are sometimes accentuated by the activities of central banks or um, you know, Congress or, or a particular event. So think of the economy as a force of nature. It is essentially all the combined commercial activities and singular decisions that we make on a day-to-day basis, hour by hour, minute by minute, second to second, on the products and services we buy, how we buy those products, what we use to pay for those products, every trip we make to go buy gas or batteries in the middle of the night uh, or during the day, every decision we make about our car, uh, every TV purchase, where we're going to live, whether we buy or pay rent, when they build a new road or a bridge, and so on. That's the economy in total. And if I haven't included everything like imports, exports, and everything, I just want to make people understand these are huge things to understand uh, and break down. And it's almost impossible to get the full breakdown from any one voice, in particular, a voice that you don't, you don't know what their intent is or where they came from. I think as a country and as a people, an individual, we like to believe that we know what's going on in the economy because we have a friend that fill in the blank or we have had an experience fill in the blank, whether it's tax information, business information, all countries and institutions collect data. And everyone looks at the data and they say, this is what's going to happen, whether it's the money supply, housing starts, employment, and so on. Academics at various universities who study society, who you know are involved in the social sciences like the economy, tell us what these numbers mean. They tell us what the context of these numbers are. And often those discussions are theoretical and we listen to them and, and opinion makers listen to them and then repeat what they say about what something means without really being able to fully understand it yourself. And this is the reason why we have to study. And then the next thing is, here's what's going to happen. Again, this is why we play the game, to find out who wins the game. In reality, I don't think anybody really knows what's going to happen with any kind of regular certainty. Most of the time, even when there are economic expansions, we really don't know why certain things work or don't work. It's often been stated, for example, that the technology revolution caused the boom of the 80s and 90s. And I tend to believe that's true. But on the other hand, there are some who have suggested that at least in Miami, the expansion of the economy there was due to the illegal cocaine trade, which produced billions of dollars in revenue, uh, which were then laundered willingly by the banks uh, through offshore and U.S. banks and uh, before it took the government years. Nobody in the government even knew this was going on in 1980. So 
there's that or the fact that productivity increases during those years were not necessarily caused by or tied to the technology revolution at least the productivity improvement was never as great as it was predicted to be or what some people say it should have been again these are all this is how we sort of sift through history let alone knowing what's going on now we argue i mean academics argue about what happened 30 years ago, let alone what is happening right now. And they devote their lives to assessing a certain part of the economy, the depression or uh, the inflation of the 70s, or what happened in the early 90s with the introduction of, uh, of uh, computer check te technology and so forth. So the average person finds it very difficult to be able to determine what is going on when it comes to dollars and cents, meaning, what we pay for food, what we pay for fuel, what we pay for shelter, and whether or not we feel optimistic or not about the future. Now, as a nomad, I know what my cost centers are. And as a nomad business person, I understand what my cost centers are. And my objective is to keep my cost centers down and cover my expenses so that I'm in you know, a, a slight profit margin every month and every year. And how I do what I do, what equipment upgrades are going to work, how I'm going to grow my channel without spending a lot of money, thousands of other small and large businesses all trying to do the same thing, doing whatever it is that they do, whether it's concrete or, you know, uh, avionics or consultants or whatever. So the problem with this kind of content is that I, it ends up taking two podcasts to explain what I think is going on what I think the plausible scenario is so that you can't, if this happens to be you, you can think about it on, a, on an objective basis and think about dollars and cents or the economy on a larger basis. Now, when you start talking about the economy, invariably the reaction is that people immediately are going to overlay a political template on the conversation depending on what their orientation in life is. The government's bad and it ruins businesses, or capitalism is evil and it's wrong and greed uh, exploits people and we don't care about small people, we only care about ourselves, we don't care about the little people, uh, we only care about making money and greed is killing everything. Or they are doing this to us for their evil reasons and in the end it's all leading up to basically we're all going to be enslaved in some way shape or form on top of the political template some people will lay a religious template and that involves moral values it involves uh, certain sections of the bible which predict the end of the world it depends on what they think about the morality of borrowing and once you start laying these templates on the discussion of economics, you obscure the truth. And it is a terminal condition because once it starts, once you impose your worldview on the data, you've lost the thread of thought, which I think is necessary to any reasonable assessment of what's going on. So in the second half of this podcast, I'm going to set up the second podcast in this series by explaining what my plan is. You know, I'm going to do a couple of videos on YouTube to give everybody an idea of uh, what is going on. And, uh, 
And so you look for those on YouTube. I've just I've just reactivated my YouTube channel, and what I'm using it for is I'm doing shorts and reels and stories and long-form videos that talk about what I'm doing. So there's going to be at least one video about this podcast, Podcast 1101, and then the second in the series, which will be 1102. Those will be out before the beginning of June. And, you know... It, it's kind of, we're kind of at a turning point. So I'll explain that in the YouTube video. So I encourage people who listen to the audio podcast to go over to YouTube and look at the YouTube stuff. Or if you see it on Facebook or if you see it on Instagram, I'm kind of leaning on Instagram these days, not so much on LinkedIn and Facebook. I'll eventually do a podcast about that too. Uh, and again, I'm, I'm just going to very quickly say thank you for the contributions at thebobdavispodcast.com. You go to the page, thebobdavispodcast.com, and you look down the right side of the column. If you're on a computer, you're going to see a picture of Mobile Podcast Command. If you're on a phone, it's at the bottom. Then there's this little donate button. It takes you to PayPal, and you can make any donation. Travis, thank you for five bucks a month. Uh, there's a bunch of other people I have to thank, but I don't have that information in front of me. Got a lot of economic information, but not that information. So I'll do that in the next podcast. So I just said, if you try to put a political template uh, on on analyzing the data in an economic data set, you've lost the thread. You can't, at that point, you've lost your ability to analyze what's going on. If you want to do your own work and figure it out, you have to be able to realize that financial and economic information, while there are always political elements where they apply, political data will not help you to understand the money. Now, it, I would be naive if I suggested that things like the Federal Reserve or uh, the debt ceiling debate going on right now don't have economic implications, but those are short-term. Yes, they have long-term implications, but you have to understand the implications of how they affect the sine wave and what they're doing to distort the economy. And those are much longer issues, which none of the politicians are going to talk about. So in order to understand, to orient ourselves to what is happening, we are put in a position of having to separate out and remove the political template if you want to know what's going on in the economy. If you, is fuel going to be more expensive next month? Is food going to be more expensive? Should I grow my business? Should I invest in a new property uh, or expand into a new market and so on? Economic discussion really has to do with metrics, data, the number of, of people applying for mortgages, the uh, energy demand numbers. What are the bids for the next three months for oil contracts? Whether or not they're storing oil. Demand levels for other commodities. Copper, corn, lumber, soybeans, pork bellies, and so forth. And those are just a few of the things that all go into modern uh, economic and industrial economies and, and modern consumer economies. How much is the consumer debt? Is uh, how, how far out are consumers delay, delaying paying their bills? All of those things really shouldn't have a political template because they are what they are right now. And their impact is ahead or behind depending on the data. It is what it is. In other words, not what the political template says it should be if you vote for me. If farmers have had a bad year, the price of corn goes up or it goes down, depending on what's going on. If there's no demand for corn, for example, uh, and generally speaking, that has nothing to do with the political orientation of the farmers in toto. The price of corn matters and what they're going to do with the proceeds of their sales. For instance, the supply shock uh, during the pandemic, 
I'm sure we will eventually find out that the inflation was caused by enormous fiscal and central bank stimulus in order to compensate for closed businesses and an effort to keep the banking system liquid. Uh, it probably wasn't uh, the quote-unquote supply shock. The reason I say that is to quote uh, Milton Friedman, the Chicago University of Chicago economist, who said years ago during the 1970s inflation, they said the same thing. It was supply shock inflation. He said there are supply shocks all the time. They don't affect prices. What affects prices? And then proceeded to explain it. The other key thing to understand is that these days you are either Pollyanna or you are a Cassandra. The Pollyanna syndrome is uh, that everything, no matter what happens, you're unreasonably optimistic. Uh, the Cassandra syndrome is you're constantly warning about the danger ahead that is terminal, that is the end of the world, and no one is listening to, to you. So you could call them bulls and bears, but that's really not what they are. It's Pollyanna versus Cassandra. Most small businesses are actually Pollyanna. Uh, they have to be re relentlessly positive in their opinion, constantly pining away for expanding their businesses and expansion justifications and growing their businesses whether they know what they're doing or not. They consume the last statistics and the last predictions from three months ago because generally my experience has been that small business people in this country uh, spend a lot of time watching television and they're getting the lowest grade data concerning the economy that you can get. And they don't spend a lot of time studying uh, economics, even if they have a degree in, a, in economics, even if they have a master's in business, they tend to, they're the ones that tend to put uh, quote unquote conservative uh, templates politically on everything. So a lot of what they believe has to do with who they voted for president and whether or not their guy is in or the other guy is out. The key here is that they are usually six months behind the trend line and they're the last people that you want to listen to. Most small business people are Pollyanna. That's the key takeaway here. Why are you doing this, Bob Davis? Why are you ruining my Memorial Day weekend to do this? Well, actually, you're probably going to listen to this on Sunday or Monday on the way back from the lake or wherever you are. I tend to be more Cassandra uh, these days because I consume a ton of information about things like those lists mentioned earlier about income data, housing starts, mortgage applications, the Baltic dry shipping index, and so on, business loans, uh, commercial real estate loans, sources for that info, which is relatively up-to-date, leading indicators as opposed to uh, following indicators, lagging indicators. And it's also important to know, and I'll mention this in the next podcast, when we talk about the economy, there are three elements. There's the GDP, the gross domestic product, there's the financial system, and there's the consumer. And they are not necessarily in sync. So the waves move up and down depending on where that wave started. So if you've ever seen, what is that biorhythm uh, thing? There's a, there's a, your biorhythms don't move uh, in, in conjunction, they move in different cycles. So a financial uh, problem might be, uh, might be the first in a cycle uh, and the consumer problem might be the last to go uh, when you start talking about hitting the trough in a recession. Uh, but anyway, in, in the second podcast, I'll lay out my own idea so you can see where I'm coming from. Related to dollars and cents for the 180 million people who are of modest means or nomads. Because here's the thing. I can only talk about indicators. I don't know what's going to happen. And I'm not going to tell you what's going to happen. 
I'm going to hopefully give you some pointers on how to do your own homework so that you can come up with your own ideas about whether you think this is going to happen or not. Predicting what's going to happen is so dependent on the force of nature, it becomes extremely difficult to make predictions. And this is why investors like Warren Buffett, for example, are not stock pickers. Buffett, and I'm not a fan of Warren Buffett, I don't like his, you know, uh, you know, cute little Omaha, uh, you know, what is it, what do they call him? The, the, uh, whatever it is, the, the sage of Omaha. I don't like his sort of homespun, not, you know, the way he talks about things, but you can't deny the fact that Warren Buffett is one of the most successful investors in history. He's right up there with, uh, Astor and Joe Kennedy and, uh, J.P. Morgan, the original J.P. Morgan. But Buffett has said that he only invests in things he understands. This is why I say we have to do our own homework. For example, he said when, when somebody asked him about Bitcoin, he said, I understand what a farm is and what it will do and how much food it will produce, what the price of food is, what the inputs are. But I don't understand something that's largely speculative like crypto. I'm not saying don't invest in crypto. I'm saying I don't because I don't get it. Buffett will consume hundreds of pages of information, P&Ls, you know, uh, profit and loss statements, you know, price to earnings ratio statements, news and information about a market segment that he wants to be in, and really a lot of information about which companies are best candidates for acquisition to concentrate in those areas. And that is what he does, and that's what his people do. And he makes his people, he, his advice to new employees or people that are starting this out is read three to 400 pages of this stuff every day. And not just the news, but the details about businesses. And it's very difficult. It's time-consuming. But he will consume information for a long time before he invests in companies. Companies, which means people in buildings and machinery and, let's say, staffs and people that can carry forward as new owners and work with Berkshire Hathaway on this effort to concentrate and dominate a market segment. Uh, he'll, he'll tell you he wants to know about who's involved in the business and whether they want to continue after we buy. This is along the same model as Sam Zell, the late Sam Zell, Carl Icahn, and others who operate their businesses by getting as much information as possible from conversations that they have with people, as well as hard information about businesses. So uh, you can do that whether you're a janitor or CEO or some guy. And sometimes the best investors are people who have a knack for crunching the numbers or looking for patterns or collecting information and consuming information concerning markets and potential pur purposes. And it's also about intuition. So it isn't just that you have an intuition or a feeling. It's also that you know how much information you have to collect and compile and compare with an eye toward weeding out the bias, your own bias, as well as the bias of others, to decide whether to buy or not. And then you put your intuition over that if you have some prescience and you'll understand. Finally, uh, I'm going to end with the, the OODA loop, uh, the great template for functioning in the world when you're one of the 180 million people who is victimized by inflation or uh, victimized by not having a job or losing a job or victimized by not being able to make your house payment or victimized when it's time for you to go find a rig if you're a nomad or being able to figure out if you can take your bus to Oregon this this summer getting seven or eight miles to the gallon. 
the OODA loop is just simply observe, orient, decide, act. And it is a great template for functioning when you can't make determinations about things that are beyond uh, the shadows. You have to act on the conditions that are in front of you in a particular moment. So the OODA loop is tactical. It's extremely tactical until, until you get so good at reacting that it becomes strategic. For nomads, that plays out, uh, as I have often talked about, as the difference between whether or not I, I'm going to hole up at a family place in Wisconsin for the summer and not travel and not spend money on fuel, or whether I'm going to travel. So for me, when I was sitting out in the desert for all winter, the reason was I wasn't going to pay high prices for fuel. They've since come down, actually fuels down something like 40 to 50% from what it was when I started studying this. So yes, I can travel. I'd like to see it come down to the $60 or $40 a barrel uh, range. And there's certain reasons why I think it might, but you know, this is what you look at and this is what you orient to. I'm not going to be able to, I can't make the price of fuel goes down, go down by thinking about it. I can react to whatever the price is and deal with it by making travel plans based on those numbers. I can deal with inflation by by not exposing myself to it, which would mean I'm not going to buy a new rig now, or maybe I will, depending on what conditions are and what they may turn out to be. Uh, we need to know about our major cost centers, food and fuel in particular, as nomads. Uh, we don't pay rent, but we buy fuel and we buy food and we get our rig service. So the only way to avoid the inflation, which is still significant for, for food, fuel, and shelter, is not to expose yourself to it. This is part of orienting ourselves to the reality of the economy for 180 million people in this country who are not owners of billion-dollar businesses or even million-dollar businesses. We're owners of very tiny micro-businesses, artistic businesses, or we have jobs. And we have to, we work at a crappy job until we have enough money to travel. Let's say that's what we have to do. And what we use the OODA loop for is not to fall victim to three things all human beings are susceptible to. The first is the need we all have to predict the future. The second is the desire of all human beings to find an explanation and then apply that explanation uniformly to every situation. And the third thing is that we all have a desire for a silver bullet plan that is hard and fast and works every time. And those things are impossible. This is why you have to orient, reorient, observe, act, uh, make decisions, act, and then go back through that loop. Those three things, by the way, make it impossible to understand the market. The markets economies, the relationships between countries, money, and trade uh, completely. And it makes people very susceptible to alarmist statements and populist politics in particular, and also manipulative statements, investor groups, and spokespeople who do not reveal their true affiliations make in media, which is completely unregulated and uncontrollable and unvetted, the channel we all use, YouTube. To sum up, finally, why do we care? because we want to be able to continue to do what we want to do. And nomads are no different from the average person in the sense that, generally speaking, we come in with actually less resources than most people because we've sworn off debt or we've sworn off, you know, living in a house and paying rent or getting a mortgage. Uh, and, and we really need to decide things. We need to know when to decide basic things, when to get... Uh, 
when to get a, a, a new rig, when to change this, when to change that, when to go, when not to go. How do you make decisions? Do you make them from an emotional base or from a tactical plan that changes based on conditions? We have to think about what we're doing. Uh, uh, we can't make emotional decisions as a nomad. And I can tell you from experience as a nomad, if you make an emotional decision, you'll have an immediate negative repercussion. Either getting stuck, losing your rig, getting robbed, getting into an accident, or getting yourself into a situation that's very difficult to get out of. So for me, if I want to buy a bus, that's going to be a decision that's going to take years. And I'm still in the observe uh, uh, phase of that process, which is gathering information. Finally, we live in a world where we're told from all these different sources that manifesting anything is as simple as thinking about it. All you have to do is say it three, six, nine times and it happens. And that doesn't work. That's not what manifestation is. Um, sometimes you have to do the things you don't want to do. And sometimes you have to employ those values that our grandparents or great-grandparents had to employ, which was I didn't have a choice of whether or not I wanted to be a farmer. I had to do it because my dad died. Or I didn't have a choice of whether I wanted to work in the plant because I got thrown out of the house and I had to go to work. Or I decided I wanted to be an artist and I ended up being a teacher. You know, this is the kind of stuff that people have to deal with. If we could all just manifest the perfect world, we'd have it. You know, but then again, you have to be careful what you pray for, right? Sometimes we have to make plans and we have to stick to a plan assiduously, no matter how difficult, and that is not easy. And so that is why I am doing these podcasts, because I think we're at an... So the next podcast, I'll say, I think we're at an inflection point with some of this data, and I, and I want to give people the information that I have, understanding it's my interpretation, so that uh, you can start to observe, confirm, and orient yourself to this new information and then make decisions accordingly. And now for a moment of silence. This is courtesy of my friends at GardenGurusMN.com. These are the people that can help you with your garden. They can get decorative um, containers for plants. They can help seed it for you. They can get it ready for you. They can give suggestions. They can do your garden for you. So they do corporate account accounts. They also do individuals and they have reasonable prices, which they will explain to you. Check them out online at GardenGurusMN.com. So it's back to the fire. Thanks for listening to the Bob Davis Podcast. Podcast 1101, dollars and cents for the nomad and for every regular person, which amount to about 180 million Americans. 